0: welcome everyone to the farm cpa podcast presented by top producer i am paul nefer your host and today we're going to have a conversation with lance woodbury from uh, pinion and uh, lance how are things going right now
1: you know, good. As you know, Paul, this is sort of the harvest season for those of us that work with farms and ranches because they're not in the field. And uh, so, for you, for me, for others that consult with those families, it's it's harvest right now. So, running around the country, speaking, working with families, running peer groups, it's uh, it's busy.
0: Yeah, I think for the month of January, I think I will be home three days. <laughs> uh, I was home Saturday and a little bit of Sunday, and then I'm home, I think, this upcoming Saturday, and then I get home the 31st or the night of the 30th, so uh, oh I God. think your schedule is probably very similar to that, isn't it?
1: It, it is, although I have a uh, senior
0: in high school, a freshman, and a sixth grader, so i, I got to show up every now and again. <laughs> Well, I think I'm trumping you. I have a, a four year old granddaughter and a two year old grandson and a two month old grandson, and I'm actually in Phoenix right now visiting them. So,
1: um, oh, very good. Very good.
0: That's great. <laughs> but also doing work at the same time. So, yep, sure. Uh, but, uh, Lance, why don't we go ahead and get started? You know, we always like to start out these conversations with sort of your, your background, you know, where you grew up, your education, and all that stuff.
1: Sure. Sure. I'm uh, so, Paul, I'm from Kansas. My uh, family had a farm in Western Kansas Leota is the name of the town that it was closest to but my dad was the youngest of four and uh, he became a Presbyterian minister and so I actually grew up in the inner city of Kansas City so I would spend my school years uh, in the hood and <laughs> I would spend my summers on the farm 20 miles northwest of Leota and um, and so there were a couple of pretty nice contrasts there I went to undergraduate, Uh, at Sterling College in Sterling, Kansas, a small Presbyterian school. Then I went and got a master's in conflict analysis and resolution from George Mason University. And then I also participated after that in Purdue's inaugural um, uh, executive MBA program. So I got an MBA focused in agribusiness from Purdue when that was getting started kind of right around the turn of the century, so right around 2000.
0: Well, good. Good. I uh, um, actually, I was at, uh, I think you were too. We were at TPAP last week speaking and, uh, and uh, Mike Bolge, uh, it was the one of the speakers along with Brent Gloy right after uh, my presentation on Friday. So those are both uh, uh, Purdue teacher alums or or instructors or, or whatever the correct terminology is, you know, if you're, I guess if you don't have a PhD you're an instructor if you have a PhD or a professor, but I I, I never quite know exactly how that uh, how that is determined, but I think that's, that's right. how it is.
1: Yeah, so. and Purdue was a great experience, and I um, you know, I was hired right out of so after graduate school I, on the East Coast, I moved back to Leota and uh, did a little consulting work in economic development, but pretty quickly was hired by a firm called Kennedy and Co., which you'll remember, uh, yeah, from back in the day, and they like your firm, like Pinion Today, um, worked with a lot of farm and ranch families, and and they helped them with pretty significant estate planning and FSA um, structure and things like that. But one of the things that they noticed, and I really have to credit the CEO at the time, Bill Jenkins, for seeing this. He said, Lance, we, we do a lot of good work in estate planning with agricultural families, and then we get the estate plan done and maybe for some reason the, the parents won't sign the documents or they'll sign them, but they won't tell the kids what they've done or they'll tell the kids and all hell will break loose. And, and he said, we've got to do a better job at helping the family talk about what their future transition will look like, because we can design whatever, you know, use, use whatever trusts or whatever entities make the most sense for the family if they can speak in one voice about how the transition should go. So he had the vision to sort of use my conflict resolution degree to sort of help families coalesce around a vision for the future transition. And that, that you know, I didn't know enough to, to see that, and he did. And, and so I really credit him with getting me started in the CPA world, even though I have no accounting background to speak of.
0: Well, I won't hold that against you, Lance, cause you do a good job. So, <laughs> Thank uh, but, uh, but uh, so I, I guess maybe what we should do then is really, you know, do a little bit deeper dive into what type of services you actually provide for a farm family. So when you get involved in a situation for a farm family, and again, you and I have done some joint ones together. Um, what, what, what is your role? What are the services that you're really trying to provide for those farm families?
1: You know, often, Paul, it's, it's pretty simple. It's getting them to communicate better about either what's happening or what will happen in the future of the family business. And so um, that often takes the shape of a what we might think of as a succession plan or an estate plan. But we both know that the plan is never really done it's an ongoing conversation and i get hired by families to help them have those conversations about the future because a third party asking questions that doesn't have a dog in the hunt so to speak but just is trying to focus on their communication tends to result in a better outcome for their planning efforts so either i'm helping a family talk about the future and how the transition will happen or I'm seeing more and more families wanting to talk about what it looks like if we, if we split the business, meaning, and what's happened there is oftentimes uh, like the baby boomer generation was perhaps put into a land entity or put into business together, maybe for estate planning purposes to get discounts and get, get under the estate tax exemption threshold. And, and they've reached a stage in their life where they're saying, you know, I, I don't know that it makes sense for us to be business partners anymore. Um, maybe we don't have kids coming back or my side of the family doesn't have kids coming back or I want to do something different. So I'm increasingly being engaged to help families think about what a, a what I would call a healthy dissolution looks like, a collaborative approach to winding down a um, it doesn't mean we wind down the business it just means that maybe we wind down the joint ownership of the business and look for ways to help get get people out of business together
0: and and i think um we have to be careful because yeah, i think some families view that as a failure and really it's not it's just more what i call an evolution of what that family dynamics really should look like Uh, would you agree with that i mean i absolutely yeah yeah.
1: we, we there is a disservice done when people throw out the family business statistics that say, you know, it out of a hundred businesses, you know, 30 make it to the second generation and 17 make it to the fourth and or third and three make it to the fourth. I'm like, that, that implies that you failed if you don't pass it on. And I counter that by saying, well, what if you pass it on, but everybody hates each other in the business? Yep. What if you have keep the family business together at the expense of having any sort of relationship with your family members. I mean, that's not success, that's failure. So I try to say, Hey, the goal here is to wind up with a healthy family relationship um, that, that allows for some business success. And if getting a little further apart from each other is the right answer, that ain't failure.
0: Yep. Yeah. Well, and in, in a lot of times, even though they are split apart, there's still synergies, you know, they might still share a little bit of office or they might, uh, one, you know, maybe the grain is sold over to the livestock side, you know, they've split it up that way. So there's many ways that they can still be involved together, but formally they're no longer, you know, part of the same operation.
1: That's right. And, and And because land is sort of an opportunity to own a little more passive of an asset, Oftentimes we'll keep the land owned together, but we'll split up the operating entity into different, um, different companies, and uh, and let people have a little more autonomy to kind of run their own thing. Which, if you think about families and their natural progression, I mean, they they sort of naturally dilute for the most part. So you get more and more family members and you're going to get people that are further away from the business. So you have to have this conversation about what's our what's our future if more and more people are not returning to the business.
0: Yeah. And what I'm seeing more and more of, and I think you probably see the same and maybe address it, is a lot of farm families, they don't have that heir that's going to take over the farm, but they don't want to sell off the equipment. They really don't want to you know, just get out of the farming business. So they're looking for that non-family member that's going to come in and, and eventually take over the operation. Are you seeing more of that too?
1: Yes. And I, I'm sure you are too. And that's leading to some really interesting conversations. If you couple that with the state of labor in agriculture and the need to find and retain good help, it's leading to lots of interesting questions and thoughts and ideas about um employee ownership or non-family ownership of certain assets. And those are fun conversations to have because there's a number of tools or approaches that um, lend themselves to thinking about
0: non-family ownership of assets. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that trend is, in my opinion, that trend is going to accelerate. It's not going to decelerate. It's definitely going to accelerate over here the next 10, 15 years.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: That's right. So if we look at, you know, what what you're involved in, if you look back on maybe the last few years or your career, um, what are some of the key traits that lead to a successful farm transition? What are those families show that maybe families that don't do it well, which we'll cover here in a minute? What what are the, some of the traits that uh, that lead to a good transition?
1: Well, certainly the willingness to communicate um, and ability to communicate are important. The willingness to say, hey, let's get in a room and talk this through, because you can't get anywhere if you don't do that at some level. And families, by their very nature, because people have grown up together and they have these historical relationships, there's lots of assumptions that go on and say, oh, I know what my brother thinks. I don't really have to have a conversation about that. Well, you really do need to have a conversation about it. And I think the families that recognize the importance of getting in a room and having the conversation and not acting based on history or acting based on assumptions is important. The other thing that is really important, Paul, is that that people, individuals in the family business have a good understanding of their strengths and weaknesses an awareness, if you will, of their emotional intelligence um, and, and oftentimes that happens because um, they left the farm for a little while and worked somewhere else or had experiences on boards or in other organizations that gave them some insight as to where they're where they're good and and where they're not so good and that self-awareness is really central to families working well together. Um, when people don't have that, self-awareness or emotional intelligence the sort of line of thinking goes well i'm an owner or my last name is is pick a name smith or something uh and people should do what i say because of that because i'm an owner or because of this name and and it and it leads to some real blind spots if you will around their management ability it leads to blind spots around communication so after After a family sort of focuses on communication, the other question is, what does each individual sort of bring to the table in terms of strengths and weaknesses? And if families will have some honest conversations about that, it'll help whatever process, whether it's estate planning or succession planning or any other kind of planning for the future of the business, um, it helps quite a bit.
0: When you um, get involved with a family in trying to interpret or, or help them understand what their sort of their uh, personalities are, do you use some formal ones such as DISC and so on? Or is it just that you can sort of tell right away after you talk with them for a little bit or communicate with them what their personality might be? I'm just sort of curious what you um, do in that. oh well, yeah, that we,
1: we, we definitely use and there's two or three of us at Pinion that do this, Devon Cook and Ethan Smith as well, and we all use different instruments. Uh, I tend to use the Colby profile, which is K-O-L-B-E, uh, and it it looks like, uh, like many of those tests, looks at four dimensions, but it's actually um, a little bit more, in my estimation, predictive about how someone will uh, function in a particular role. Will they be very attuned to details? Are they very focused on process? Are they uh, risk takers, um, sort of improvisational risk takers, meaning do they get kind of enamored by the shiny object or the squirrel and go chase it? Or do they enjoy working with their hands? And, And what's interesting about those dimensions is it really helps us understand how effective a manager they will be, or how successful in a management role they will be, if we sort of know their strengths along those continuums. But the DISC works well too. Myers Briggs, of course, is another uh, um, predictive index. True colors. I mean, all of those are helpful for getting at the understanding of your strengths and weaknesses.
0: In 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 a, in a team dynamic like that, you don't want you don't want everybody to be the same, you know, setting, so to speak. You know, you almost. Um, Like here at my son's firm on the wall for or on the door for each person, there's sort of a line. It might start in the lower left and go to the upper right. It might start in the upper left and go to the lower right. But it's like in a team, you almost want, almost like an X. You know, if you're dealing with somebody, you don't want two people that start in the lower left and go to the upper right exactly the same to be necessarily in charge.
1: It's that's exactly right. I mean, you don't want clones of one another. And if you look around at other industries besides agriculture, what you you see it more clearly that one of the things we tend to do is hire a higher people like us or hire, hire people that fit, um, you know, kind of predominantly an in industry. Take, for example, accounting the world that we both have, have lived in tend to hire um, detailed and process-oriented folks, which is great, right? Because you're dealing with financial issues, so you want to get them right, and you need a process to make sure that things get done you know, correctly from a process standpoint. However, if everybody is detailed and process-oriented, you get caught up in uh, sort of uh, uh, analysis paralysis Yep. And you get pretty bureaucratic with processes. So you need people who are going to say, hey, let's shortcut the process in this way. And this will be healthy for us if we sort of make the process more efficient. Or you want people who will say, hey, okay, that's enough information. It's time to call the question. And, and it's just like in farms, you know, trying to get detailed uh, cost information and and that um benchmarking and and sort of enterprise level accounting, I mean, at some point there are diminishing returns about the level of detail you get to in in that. And and somebody has to say, okay, that's enough. We can make some assumptions and go forward. And that's why you want that diversity because absent that person saying, hey, that's enough, you'll sort of spin your wheels into oblivion, digging into the details. And uh, so you want that diversity as you're suggesting.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's a good point because I know, like you say, in the accounting industry, which is I've been in for 40 years, uh, on our staff at times, I have to train them or help train them that good enough is what we're looking for. We're not looking for perfection because there is no such thing with tax returns or whatever else that you're dealing with. There is no such thing as perfection. You know, yeah. uh, or if you're striving for perfection, suddenly the client's going to get a bill for $10,000 instead of $1,500 or whatever it might be. So, yeah. so that's a good point. So now we sort of looked at what are the good traits or what's the, the you know, the, the, for a successful family, what are some of those bad traits? And I have a feeling I already know where you're going, but I'd like to have you share what you view as probably the worst or what typically makes a family fail at this succession.
1: You know, I might take it a little uh, a little different direction. I mean, obviously the the kind of contrary view of what I said earlier like not communicating well or not being aware of your strengths and weaknesses, but one of the one of the things that can get in the way is um the family history and not uh, I mean, there's oftentimes, you know, a rich legacy and you want to honor that legacy, but there's also a history of, we've always done it this way. And you really need the family to say, Hey, we, we did it that way when there was, you know, when mom and dad were owners and we were, and, and, and it was sort of a, uh, kind of a, uh, oh, kind of a solo, business or sole proprietorship at some level, but now it's a partnership. We have siblings involved or we have cousins involved, and we need to conceive of how we are going to do things differently than how maybe our parents or grandparents did it, and so one of the things that gets in the way is is too much um, obligation to history and the way we did it in the past. Sometimes, and I, I would credit Barb Dart For this at the family business consulting group, but this this concept of um, do we have as we think about the future, does it have to be this family business or can we be an enterprising family? Does that make it? See what I'm saying there. There's a family business versus an enterprising family, and a family business gets sort of trapped in well, we've had this farm forever and this is what we have to do to keep things going the same way. Versus an enterprising family that will say, hey, how can this business be a vehicle to the future where we as partners decide where we're headed? And so I guess what I'm trying to say, Paul, is sometimes families get hemmed in by their historical thinking about what the business has to be and what it has to do. And if you can get over the communication and emotional intelligence hurdles, the next one is to say, hey, how do we can how do we look to the future? take the best of the past, but maybe not take everything from the past because there's usually some unhealthy stuff in that past that we need to
0: acknowledge and change. Yeah, it's a good point because, um, you know, I think all families can eventually come to that point. It's just that certain families are going to have more friction than other families.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And And their ability to say... Hey, we have conflict. Let's work through it. I mean, th- there are lots of families where the parents answer to conflict is to stick their heads in the sand and um, and which just creates a disaster. And I say to people, look, if we're going to have conflict, let's get to it, because I cannot think of um, almost any instance where where it got better because we waited <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just almost never happens, and and you, you know this. The most common refrain when we get involved with a family is they say, "Man, we should have done this ten years ago." Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, exactly. You know, so, so, so trying to help you know a family that will just say, "Look, we got issues, and and we need to work on them," and and to know that it's normal to have issues. I mean, I sometimes say a dysfunctional family is one that gets along all the time meaning every family business has conflict and i sometimes joke if you think your family business doesn't have conflict give me about 10 minutes with a few family members and i'll find it you're dead yep. if you say we don't have conflict so a family that is willing to say look we got issues we need some help um and and whether or not they get a third party involved is sort of secondary that the real trait, the successful trait you're looking for is whether they admit they have issues and are willing to get some help. Oftentimes the CPA is in the best position to provide some help. And, uh, and sometimes it's their lender or sometimes it's their attorney. So it doesn't have to be a family business consultant. It can be just a third party who asks good questions of the family can do wonders for a family business.
0: Yeah, you're talking about uh, conflict, you know, in our family, my wife and I, and I have four sons, but my wife, she'll say once in a while, how she hates conflict. And I'll tell my wife, honey, you may hate conflict, but you're the best person of dealing with conflict because you actually deal with it right away. You know, whereas, yeah, I might just, ah, that, yeah, we'll just let that go. and, And, you know, no big deal. Whereas my wife says, nope, we're going to address it right now cuz we're not going <laughs> to let it fester. So yeah uh, yeah yeah.
1: So that's that's very that's very healthy in a uh in a family business to have someone in the family. And you know, that's that kind of brings to mind the idea that, you know, people wear certain hats in the family and the person who will wear the hat of saying, "Hey, we need to work on this as a family," is a pretty important hat yeah. to wear and and the hardest thing to watch is when somebody in the family is wearing that hat of being willing to say, hey, we need to talk about this as a family, but the rest of the family shuts that down or the rest of the family says, oh, that person's a troublemaker or whatever. I'm like, hey, somebody calling you to account to deal with conflict, that person should be, in fact, we should actually go through a family and name whose responsibility it is to say, time out, we need to get in a room because uh, if, if that person's not celebrated you know the f- family will spiral and and that person yeah. eventually if they're not celebrated they eventually give up and go do something else
0: oh yeah they get uh, so frustrated they said uh, i don't need to deal with this anymore it's not worth it yeah yeah okay well lance we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message and we'll come back and uh, and rejoin our conversation
1: How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? 10 years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know Rabo Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Rabo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance. Rabo Agri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Roboagro Finance.
0: back everyone to the farm cpa podcast presented by top producer i am paul neef your host and we're going to rejoin our conversation with uh, lance woodbury from pinion um lance you know we've sort of gone over many things dealing with farm family succession but now i want to sort of have you put on your crystal ball if we can and sort of think over the next maybe 5 10 15 years um where do you think this you know the the succession business is going maybe is there new technology you think is coming down the road um what about the new generation of farmers you know us baby boomers i'm one of the baby boomers um you know we're all retiring and we got millennials and gen x gen y and so on that are really starting to take over and, and pushing us baby boomers out how how do you see all that dynamics changing over the next uh, five or ten years
1: well Paul, we sort of hinted at this earlier, but I think you're going to see much different ownership structures in the future where we have um, uh, potentially non-family members as owners or there's some sort of uh, deferred compensation or other types of plans that maybe serve as a proxy for ownership or maybe more people owning ground. I was with um, one farmer who, instead of Sort of looking at employees owning parts of his business, he he looks for ways to get each employee owning some farm ground that, that yep. they farm together as a group. And that's a pretty unique approach. And, um, and so I think we're going to see more of that in these transitions as boomers retire and next-gen people come in, but the next-gen people may or may not be um, Family members. You're also going to see, you know, there's a bit of a, a sort of a conflict in the approach to work-life balance. Um, <laughs> and so I think that that is going to change. And, you know, I'm not worried about that at all because I know it will work out or get figured out. And I've seen several families figure it out, but it, it's going to be different. I mean, we may spend a little more on labor so that we have more margin of time in the business and and we make up for that with um, other sort of, of performance metrics in, in the business. So, I mean, I think the culture of that will change a little bit in, in terms of how we think about labor, how we think about ownership of the of the farm operating enterprise, maybe even how we think about land ownership. I The place I do get a bit worried, Paul, is, and this is around technology, in that I see a lot of people using texting as a replacement for conversation. And yep. it, it does not work that way. I mean, the particularly when there's a tough issue at play, the idea that people can talk about it by sending messages sort of one way across the wire to someone else versus getting in a room and having a conversation where you can read body language and facial expressions and... And have a have just a better experience communicating. I mean, i I don't think I don't think technology, or at least I'm not a I'm I'm not a visionary as it relates to how technology is going to help us have better uh, conversations. Unless it's you know but more use of video technology, or but but even then, it's just hard to find a good replacement for getting in a room and having. Yep the conversation that needs to happen. Um, And so I see people relying on texting probably a bit too much in family businesses and it, it sends the situation South
0: in a hurry. Yeah, I I think you're right. Uh, And certainly what you don't want to have happen is you get six people in a room to have a face-to-face conversation and they're all texting back and forth, (laughs) you know, that, that sometimes happens too. So, uh, you know, it's like, uh, and, and of course, I, I think for a lot of people, it's almost become more comfortable for them to communicate via texting than via voice. You know, I, I think especially uh, maybe the younger generation, I know certainly with my kids when they were younger, if I call them, they never answered. If I text them, I got an answer back in 3.2 seconds, you know, so uh, uh, but uh, but that's OK. You know, yeah uh, we we worked it out so that's right
1: that's right hey you know one of the other things i would mention and and i mention this because top producer was actually an initiator of this effort 10 years ago to start a bunch of peer groups in agriculture some of those yep. peer groups are still meeting and of course we facilitate a number of peer groups and um and i think that that trend will continue of people looking for peers to help them through the knothole of various business decisions, or to serve as their um, sort of advisory board, yep. with peer groups, and and like I said, top producer had a big hand in getting that effort started ten years ago, and um, and there's a you know a lot of peer groups that continue to form and um, change and adapt, but and and in some of those peer groups, we're actually into the next generation of Family members in those groups, and what's been kind of fun to see is a a family member, like a, a a young adult of one family, will go do an internship at one of their peer group members' farms, and it provides this sort of uh, internship opportunity or off farm employment, but off farm with uh, with another, you know farm that's similar or similar in business approach or things like that. So I think peer groups will continue to play and and maybe even increase uh, people's approach to how to get better as a business. And, And I think that plays into the generational piece that I think the younger generation is more willing to maybe share or strategize or get in a room and talk about their challenges and things like that so i think there will be more for group approaches to problem solving
0: yeah no i totally agree and uh, and now that i am uh, officially retired from cla uh, um you know i'm actually involved with uh leading some peer groups myself and i'm looking forward to that because uh, uh, you typically when you get that harmonious group of six or seven or eight farmers or whatever it might be together you know it's sort of like the old adage of one plus one equals three and i think that's uh, definitely comes about in a lot of these peer groups yeah for sure for sure yeah. so well we've 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 covered quite a bit here uh, you know we're getting close to the end of the conversation but i'd like to go through just a couple questions for you uh, and i think you've already mentioned the first one a little bit but uh, Who would you think your mentor was in in your career?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I would point back to the first couple of uh, CEOs that I worked with at Kennedy & Co., which then became Keiko Isom, which is now Pinion. Bill Jenkins and Kurt Seamers were both pretty instrumental in helping me develop as a leader. Um, Bill helped me get um, sort of plugged into a CPA firm and think about providing leadership to other folks in the firm and, and also, um, also clients. And then the CEO that followed him, Kurt Seamers gave me an opportunity to actually go run the office, the accounting office in garden city, Kansas, and to have a non CPA uh, running a CPA, you know, part of a CPA firm, which eventually worked its way up until I was running our uh, agribusiness division, which, which was a big chunk of the firm. You know, I would have never had that opportunity had it not been for uh, Kurt, the CEO at, at that time that helped me sort of evolve into that role. And, and you know, for a consultant, for a guy who'd been consulting from the beginning, the chance to cut your teeth on having your own P&L and making hiring right. and firing decisions and things like that, that was really pretty powerful for me. So those yeah. two guys were both good, good mentors.
0: Okay, good. And then, uh, you know probably like me, you know, I can work too many hours. I already know that Uh, uh, my wife uh, is very, very supportive of me, but what's your hobby when you're not working?
1: I like to ride my bicycle. And years ago, I mean, I grew up riding, riding a road bicycle, a little bit of mountain biking, but but more road and gravel. And years ago I took five weeks and I rode my bicycle across the United States. So you can Uh, ask me about that sometime later, but when I'm not working, I'm on my bicycle riding around the country or the community or when it's cold out, my indoor trainer on Zwift. So. Okay,
0: okay. Well, that's uh, that's not my hobby, but it sounds like a pretty good <laughs> hobby. I know uh, Chris and Pam Hesse; they they like to ride their bikes too. Yep, they actually have nice tandem bikes. So, uh, um, but uh, I, I typically, I think I try to chase a little white ball once in a while or. I read. Uh, you know, people ask, "Well, Paul, you do this and you do that, and you still read." Like, I think every year since fourth grade, I've read at least a hundred books a year. So that's. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, that's that's probably my hobby, I guess. So I guess, uh, what what keeps you up at night? What what do you worry about, or is there nothing you really worry about?
1: Yeah, I I don't. You know, I have pretty strong faith, and actually, I do some writing around faith and family business, um, which you can find if you go to. Lancewoodbury.com or I have a sub stack yeah. um that focuses on faith and family business. And I, I would say Paul, I don't there's not much that keeps me keeps me up at night because at, you know, in the big scheme of things, I mean, business is important, but business isn't the only thing that's important. No. And one's yep. spirituality and their relationships and connections to others are uh sort of more important, I think. Yep. And uh and so, I, if if the faith is strong and your connections with others are good, um, you know that 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 really takes away the worry.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And then finally, I always end with this. Usually, typically, what's your definition of success in farming?
1: I would say if people are farming, but they enjoy the people they are farming with. That's success. Yeah. If you're doing the work, but don't like who you're doing it with, you can have all the acres, you can have all the revenue, you can have all the outward indicators of success. But if you don't like who you're doing it with, it's probably not successful. So, yeah,
0: to- totally agree. Totally agree. So, again, yep. Lance, anything else you'd like to uh, say before we uh, end the conversation?
1: No, just thanks for the opportunity. And it's always fun to catch up with you. I remember one time I ran into you. We were both walking through the Dallas airport at the same time. So I always, I I don't know where I'll see you next, Paul, but I always enjoy catching up.
0: Yeah. And and again, we've done some joint stuff together and I'm sure we'll probably do some in the future too. So, uh, but uh, again, thanks a lot, Lance. This is the farm cpa podcast presented by top producer and i am paul for your host signing off